to continue with our commentaries on the fundamental text of Indian spirituality, which is Bhagavad Gita, and in which Krishna teaches directly the science of spirituality, in particular Karma Yoga, but as you are going to have a sample even tonight, he makes a lot of divagations and a lot of collateral teaching. Basically, Krishna teaches Indian spirituality in total. So, we were in the beginning of the chapter number three, where Krishna beautifully starts talking about action, karma yoga, such as action. And uh, we had stopped last time with the strophe number eight from this chapter, where Krishna is telling that great, great sentence, one of the greatest sentences which exists in Bhagavad Gita, the famous statement, action is superior to inaction. This is one of the golden sentences, one which should be written, painted in gold, one of the great aphoristic statements, which reflects the philosophy of Karma Yoga, the philosophy of Krishna, the philosophy of Bhagavad Gita, and the philosophy of the highest spirituality. Action is superior to inaction. Always philosophically, when you have to choose between, in this situation, should I practice action or inaction, sometimes inaction can be more comfortable, can be less risky, but actually action is superior to inaction, as Krishna says, if you can find the resourcefulness for that. Of course, there is a challenge always. And with the shloka number 9, with the strophe number 9, Krishna is going into a very strange place. Krishna is going into something which is very Hindu, very spiritual. He is going into something which is the essence of spiritual magic because Krishna starts speaking about ritual actions. He says, accepting actions, this is strophe 9, accepting actions performed for Yagya, Yagya is one of the Sanskrit typical names for Homa or Agnihotra, the fire ceremony, the famous fire sacrifice, the ritual of the fire, which is one of the most widespread pan-Indian customs, one of, because it comes from the Vedas, one of the most widespread Indian customs is the famous ritual of the fire, fire ceremony. <clears throat> there are equivalences of that in the Zoroastrian tradition, in other traditions which speak about the sacred fire, the holy fire, and other throughout humanity, but everybody who knows Indian popular religiousness knows that one of the constants is this obsession with the fire ceremonies, which are called Yagya or Homa or Agnihotra. The meanings of these words differ slightly, but roughly we are talking about the same thing. In Bhagavad Gita, the word used in Sanskrit is Yagya itself, and Krishna, therefore, I resume the strophe number nine. 
accepting actions performed for Yagya. Like you do something for Yagya. This world is in bondage to action. For the sake of Yagya, engage in action free from attachment. Therefore, Krishna says, exception made of Yagya, because Yagya is an action. A Brahmin, a Vedic priest, sits in front of a fire pit and throws things into the fire and says mantras and gives blessings. It has many equivalences and we'll get to that. You'll understand the equivalences of all that in short while. And Krishna says, let's not speak about Yagya. Yagya is a different thing. Let's take a, let us now take for your understanding a simple equivalence. A simple equivalence, for example, in Christianity would be the mass. The mass is the Christian equivalent of the Hindu Yagya. Although both the Hindu purists and the Christian fundamentalists would leap at my throat for this one, however, from the standpoint of the history of religion and hermeneutics, and all the symbolism and all the sacred, the study of the sacred and the profane, actually this statement is very clear. Every religion has a form of sacrificing. There is a way of sacrificing to God. Periodically, like every Sunday or every morning or every Wednesday and Friday or every whenever, every depending on the nature of every religion, people meet from time to time to give something to God. That is called the word for it, and the word by which sacrifice, by which Yagya is translated in English usually, is sacrifice. It's like not, it's, it's not just the fire ceremony. It's any ritual of sacrifice. Sacrifice, when you say sacrifice, people immediately think about the meaning of sacrifice in primitive societies. And when you say sacrifice, people think about bloody sacrifice, animal sacrifice, and why not, let's push it to the extreme, even human sacrifice. While it is true that in their manner of relating with deities, some societies have descended into some forms of abomination, such as animal sacrifices, blood, and even human sacrifices, and I hasten to say, that is the mark of a very uncivilized society. It is the mark of a very unrefined form of spirituality. It is the mark of a primitivism in terms of spirituality. Nevertheless, the feeling exists. You have to sacrifice. So, Eve and the gods give you something back. You give something to the gods. The gods offer you something back. It is a give and take. Well, the same thing exists everywhere. The give and take in Christianity is called a must. And what do you give? You give your faith, you give your devotion, you give yourself, and what do you get? You get the blood and flesh of Christ. You get the communion. Therefore, even the mass is the way the Christians sacrifice. You have to give something, so you receive something. The ancient Jews had a different sacrifice. The Holocaust, the burning, the total burning. You brought a blameless lamb, 
the priest of the Jews took it to the altar and burned it and burned it and burned it with incense and prayers and, and that lamb was offered to God. This is already animal sacrifice. It's blood sacrifice. But making the long story short, then this was replaced by Jesus in the famous evening from the Last Supper where he presented the disciples with bread which he broke and gave it to them and with wine which he poured or showed to them and he said this is my flesh and this is my blood like from now on if you still want to give to God flesh and blood you are going to do it in a transferred way it's not going to be real flesh and real blood it's going to be the wine and the bread which are symbolically and it's more than symbolical for the Christian believers, magically turned into flesh and blood, and those are your offering. So, the principle remains in every religion, in every spirituality, and you'll understand why Krishna explains it brilliantly. Here you are going to have an opening, a bit of an epiphany tonight about what is the essence of all these spiritual things, Krishna explains very clearly that actually the sacrifice is something special. Like for example, let's say one of you is a priest, a Christian priest. And then you want to take a tapas. And your tapas is a tapas of silence, what in yoga we call mauna. Your tapas is not valid concerning the mass. Like you can still wake up in the morning go and say the Mass for the congregation, and then you don't speak for the rest of the day. That's called Mauna, because the Mass is something else. That's not a human activity. That's Yagya, that's sacrifice. And sacrifice falls into another category. And that's why Krishna simply says, the world is bound by actions other than those performed for the sake of sacrifice. Every action which is not mass, yagya, homa, sacrifice, it is normal action. And Krishna says, the world is bound by action. The world is in bondage to action. What does this mean? That this produces karma. And as you know, karma is the chain. Every action which is not Yagya, Yagya is a symbolic name, I hope you now understand. It doesn't apply only to Hindus, but to every bona fide form of sacrifice. We'll get back to that. Every action which is not Yagya does not produce, produces karma, which automatically tells us also that Yagya does not produce karma. That's very clear from the very beginning, Krishna says that. So says, exception made of Yagya, this world is in bondage to action. Action binds through karma. And he says, therefore, O son of Kunti, perform action for the sake of sacrifice alone, free from any attachment. Therefore, Krishna gives a clue. He says, since action, which is not sacrifice, is causing karma and thus bondage, 
he says you Arjuna perform action as sacrifice therefore remember he taught him he said you have to act like this he taught him Sankhya he taught him about Raja Yoga how to detach the mind and the senses and all that and now he comes with a fresh angle he said exception made of religious sacrifice of the right everything produces action and therefore he says now that we are on a battlefield you have to act as is this is Yagya like you are going to fight with Duryodhana and most probably you are going to kill Duryodhana Duryodhana is like something which you throw in the fire it's sacrifice to the gods offer the life of Duryodhana to God this war is sacrifice you perform it as an offering it's a very bold concept very rough very terrible and very easy to misinterpret here Krishna is giving a magic teaching which is very often not commented in, in Bhagavad Gita very few people go there and we in Tantric Yoga we have a lot of understanding a lot of technical understanding a lot of engineering understanding of this and there are things which are even beyond the scope of this satsang meeting which I will where I will not go and I will not touch some levels of revelation which cannot be touched at this level of the satsang meeting but remember that here Krishna is touching a dimension of the spiritual life which is very magic Krishna says there is a special action and that one is done in a state of detachment that is Yagya or whatever equivalent it has in your culture and in your environment and Yagya is something else because it is done for the gods it is a consecration basically the secret of Yagya is consecration itself that you consecrate of course that consecration is not always supreme and then sometimes we're talking about witchcraft magic white magic black magic whatever it is but what I'm trying to say here Krishna is touching here some very important secrets some very important issues of the spiritual life and those of you who will understand them and especially those of you who will be able to understand the spiritual substratum the spiritual application of this you are going to see that the whole life is a sacrifice no Jesus what does Jesus want from you he says it very clearly I want you I want you to give me your heart and soul Jesus says those who will lose their lives for my sake are going to gain it and those who will try to save their lives are going to lose them like Jesus simply says I want you to play everything on one throw of dice and give your life to me and if you give your life to me you are going to get it for back hundredfold but it has an act of it involves an act of madness like you have to dare and jump head forward no safety net you have to be ready to lose your life for God you reach to be 60 years old or 80 years old and you look back and you say I haven't got anything I might very well have simply wasted my life trying to chase the rainbow 
if you reach to the point where you can lose your life for God, either it's Jesus or any other form, you gain it, you win it. It's a sort of a test of how surrendered you are in this respect. And this is sacrifice. You are actually sacrificing your life. You are throwing your life in the fire. You are offering your life to the gods or to God in this particular monotheistic meaning. And therefore, even devotion is a form of sacrifice. Devotees are sacrificing. They are giving their love. They are pouring their love and devotion and surrender in the fire of God. That's why always what I'm going to teach you next there are things which have a magical application and there are things which have a spiritual application. Spirituality is nothing else but a sacrifice. When you, for example, meditate, what do you try to do? You try to arrest the movements of the mind. So what do you do? You are actually sacrificing the hyperactivity of your mind. Meditation is an effort. Your mind wants to roam and think. And you are telling to it, no, focus on a black dot. Focus on a mantra. Focus on the heart. Focus on God. This is a sacrifice. And it even feels like a sacrifice. Many people say, oh, my mind has such an urge to roam and I have to make a real effort. And sometimes it feels like I'm dying. I really have to slap my wrist. No, like really my mind wants to be all over the place and I discipline it. There are people, if they do some daily meditation, they say, oh, I'm doing lots of things and then I'm looking at the clock and it's like five o'clock and I have to do my meditation because it's my tapas. And sometimes it's like my mind screams, no, 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 we have very important things to do. And it's like you have to commit suicide, you have to say no. Now everything stops. I go and do meditation. For the mind, that's a sacrifice. It feels painful. It's like you have to choke your mind. You have to reduce it to silence. The same thing if you do a 10-day retreat or something. It's a sacrifice. And therefore, even meditation is a sacrifice. Devotion is a sacrifice. Hatha yoga is a sacrifice because you stop moving the body chaotically and your body is full of energy and it wants to swing. It wants to rock. It wants to do a lot of things. It wants to palpitate like a wild animal. And you freeze it, choke it, and all that energy which is bouncing back because now you are not moving anymore. It goes boiling and boiling and boiling and boiling and then you go into Shaktopaya or Shakti Chalana, you go into Kundalini rising and thus you have moved to the next level of your evolution, to the next level of your practice. That's why every spiritual practice is sacrifice. When Mahatma Gandhi does Karma Yoga, that's sacrifice. He sacrifices minutes and hours of his life. He sacrifices his freedom, he sacrifices his comfort to give them to God. It's like you throw something in fire, only you don't need a literal fire. It's all symbolic. The fire ceremony is a very primitive visual ceremony for people who need to see something to get a symbol of it. But the yogis can do the sacrifice symbolically. All your life is a sacrifice. 
All your life you are throwing it into the fire through devotion, through meditation, through Hatha Yoga, through Brahmacharya, through Karma Yoga. Everything is a sacrifice which you are throwing in the fire and the fire sends it to God. Because that's what the fire is. The fire is like an elevator. The fire is like a dematerializator. The fire is like beam me up, Scotty. It cannot beam you down. The fire never brings something down. The fire only sends things up. Exactly like the heat of the fire moves up. As above, so below. In the physical body you have the flame, the plasma, and the heat going up. And the vapors, whatever gases are emanated by the fire, go up. In the subtle worlds, in the astral body, the fire sends up the energies, the different energies. That's exactly what Manipura Chakra does. So instead of lighting a fire, you can do Udhyana Bandhas. Udhyana Bandha is your own Yagya. You have a Yagya in your stomach. The fire pit is in your belly button. You do Udhyana Bandha, you sacrifice, you offer to God. Therefore, this can be understood on so many levels. Here, Krishna opens a subject and he approaches it in some six strophes. But actually he opens a subject that we could talk courses after courses about this one. Because here Krishna opens the door to the whole world of spirituality understood as sacrifice. If you remember, those of you who are more advanced in yoga, there is even one of the goddesses of Tantra which governs sacrifice and which governs these processes of sacrificing, and that is Chinamasta, the great power of electricity and sacrifice, who has no head, and exactly through this beheading, she is like a sacrificial goat, she is like a beheaded animal, and this symbolizes for those who understand the power of the sacrifice, the power of subliming. Sacrifice can be understood even in the level of the daily language, like there are people who sacrifice their lives, for example, we all know what happened a few days ago when 50 workers in the nuclear power plant in Japan became national heroes. Everybody ran away from that city and 50 people, and that's so much the Japanese spirit and the world could learn something from that. 50 people simply said, if we go, this power plant will explode and contaminate everybody. So we'll stay. And most probably those 50 people, most of them will die or will be severely irradiated for the rest of their lives. They became national heroes overnight because 50 people without being... No, you could say it's the modern world. We don't live in the world of the samurai. People are not having idealistic dreams anymore. Lo, this is the egregore, the national soul. The Japanese soul is so powerful that even in 2011, when the Japanese society is rotten, svadistanistic, confused, disturbed, all over the place, still suddenly, in 50 people, there appeared the spirit which says, we will stay here and die for our families, for Japan, for the whole world. We will stay here and take radiations if necessary. This is also a form of sacrifice. Many martyrs and heroes Christian saints like Saint George, for example, or great liberators like El Cid, the liberator of Spain, and others, they've done exactly that. They have been sacrificing. So sacrifice means a lot of things, including your life, 
your time, your energy, and all these things can be done in a religious, spiritual way. That's why Yagya, which I'm going to use alternatively with the word sacrifice, remember it's a very big name and it shouldn't be understood literally. There are some narrow-minded pundits, scholars in India, who just think that this refers to some sort of reminder of some regulations about Yagya. But actually the subject is way vaster and Krishna comes back to it in some chapters. And he says there are yogis who sacrifice their exhaled breath in the inhaled breath and their inhaled breath in the exhaled breath. I anticipate one of the famous strophes from later. How can you sacrifice the inhaled breath in the exhaled breath? That's pranayama. That's a description of pranayama from the standpoint of sacrifice. That has nothing to do with yagya. It's way beyond yagya. Yagya is just a pretext. Yagya is the gross visible manifestation. And of course normal people, villagers, householders, they cannot concentrate. They don't feel energy and chakras. They don't know how to use mantras. They cannot do a lot of things. And then for them you need to make something visible and symbolic. It's the same with Christians. Everywhere in the Christian tradition it is said one of the essential things, at least in the traditional branches of Christianity. If you are a practicing Christian, one of the essential things, the most important single element in all, is that you should take the communion. You should commune with Christ. Every Sunday or whatever your church does, you have to go and take the blood and body of Christ. That's the practice of Christianity. The communion. But what do you do, for example, about the great saints like Saint Mary of Egypt, who lived alone in the desert for 30 years? She never visited a church or a monastery. So Saint Mary of Egypt didn't take any communion for 30 years, and yet she was a great saint, and when she was praying, she was lifted in the air by the power of her own prayer. And the Christian mystics say very clearly, there are many saints who commune directly with Christ through prayer. Like householders, they need to eat a piece of bread and to drink a sip of wine because they are gross and for them there needs to be some physical support because otherwise they won't even believe that it happens. And even when they take some bread and wine, they think that this is just some symbolic bollocks of the church and they don't even have faith in that anymore in the 21st century. But the saints, not only that they didn't have any physical support because they never visited an altar or a church. They communed through prayer. You don't need to eat bread and wine to commune with Christ. But if you pray 12 hours per day, you commune plenty with Christ. Householders eat bread, saints pray. That's the difference. So therefore understand clearly that Yagya means a lot of things symbolically and here you have to open your mind and to understand the whole spirituality, what Krishna says, is a universal truth. There is not a religion from Zoroastrianism to Judaism, from Christianity till Hinduism or Buddhism, where people do not sacrifice. There is always sacrifice. Sometimes that sacrifice is good thoughts, sometimes that sacrifice is good words, sometimes that sacrifice is good deeds. There are very many ways of sacrificing. And that is why Krishna, to conclude here when he opens this 
great avenue of thought. He says, therefore, O Arjuna, perform action for the sake of sacrifice alone, free from attachment. Like everything which you do should be like a sacrifice for God. But this eventually says my whole life is a sacrifice. Why am I doing this? I do this for God. You don't like to use the word God, then use whatever means supreme for you. I do it for my higher self. I do it for the Absolute. I do it for Shambhala. I do it for the Buddha nature, for the great void, or for the Buddhas of the past, present, and future. It doesn't matter, as you know, what words you put there, because the words cannot designate something which is beyond words. It's anyhow a symbolic appellation of something which cannot be appellated by any exact word. We call it Shiva in the Kashmiri Shaivistic Tantric tradition, because that's a very pleasing and beautiful symbol. Shiva is the cosmic consciousness, Shiva is one with Shakti, and this Shiva Shakti Paramashiva Anuttara, the Supreme, is a name, is just another name to be given to this Supreme Consciousness. And now he continues elaborating a little bit this grand science of sacraments. Here Krishna speaks about none less, nothing less than the science of sacraments. What is the backbone of every religion and spiritual practice, but with a very new angle, this Chinamasta angle to the whole thing. In the beginning, having created man along with Yagya, the Lord of creation, the creator, which is Brahma in the Hindu tradition, said, by this Yagya shall he prosper, and this shall bring forth the fulfillment of desires. Therefore, Krishna, who a bit later again reminds that he is God himself, he is an avatara, Krishna states very clearly that the sacrifice is created together with the human being. It's like inseparable from creation. You cannot imagine the creation of life on earth and especially of the human being like conscious life on earth without yagya. As soon as you have man, you have yagya. Yagya is possible to be done only by the human being because it requires a deliberate choice that you offer, like the consecration. You cannot consecrate involuntarily. The consecration has to be done out of your own free will, out of your own choice. So the Creator, having in the beginning of creation created mankind together with sacrifice, said, by this shall he propagate, let this be the milch cow of your desires. That's the symbolic name in the Vedic tradition. The milch cow is a sort of the magic stone, the tree of abundance, which gives always the fruits. So he says, by Yagya shall you prosper, by Yagya shall you propagate, by Yagya should you fulfill your desires. Like, that's the way. Try to think a little bit. Krishna says, the Creator established this law. This is a law of the universe. It's, it's made by the Creator. It's not something that we can argue about or bargain about. This is non-negotiable. Krishna says that's embedded. It's like the law of gravitation. 
You cannot change it. That's the way the universe is made. The creator created, the creator created the human being and said there is also yagya, like you have to give, you have to offer, you have to sublime, you have to transcend, you have to all the meanings which I gave until now, and by this shall you propagate, like this is how you should make children. This is how you should propagate perpetuation of the species. By this shall you prosper, like thus shall you increase. This is the way to advance and prosper, not without God, not without consecration and sacrifice. That is the demonic way, that is the dark way. It's, it's worse than demonic, you are going to see. And finally, he says, by this you should fulfill your desires. The human beings have desires, don't they? Don't you realize that the human beings wanted to go faster and faster and faster and faster? And for thousands of years, the fastest thing was the horse. Couldn't go faster than the horse until some 150 years ago. And then the steam engine appeared. And then the internal combustion engines appeared. And then we started moving faster and faster, cars and trains and everything. It's a response to a desire. If humanity would have not desired this, the universe would have not answered because you need to put your shoulder into it. Now we are on the verge of a major energy crisis. Everybody who knows, knows that we have experienced peak oil already. The oil production has peaked, now it is declining. From now on the oil price will continue increasing. Either they make some engineering maneuvers and from time to time it will decrease a little bit. It's a well-known thing. China produces more and consumes more. India produces more and consumes more. Billions of people want more mobile telephones. They want mobile telephones in Africa and in places where they never had them. We need more oil. But there is no more oil. It has peaked already. And therefore the price can only go up. And what appears from this? It appears that humanity starts being more starved and desperate for alternative sources of energy. They will appear. In 10-20 years they will appear. Because in the moment when everybody screams subconsciously, we need something, we need something, like if the liter of gasoline will become $20, you won't be able, most people won't be able even to drive a car anymore. But there are cities especially in North America, where if you don't have a car, you die almost. And the public transportation will follow the same pattern of becoming prohibitively expensive. And then what to do? Therefore, like people say, we'll take bicycles. Yeah, but there are cities where even with a bicycle, you drown very quickly because it's, they are huge. Like in Los Angeles, to use a bicycle, it's hilarious because it's, it stretches 110 kilometers from one end to the other. So therefore, it's obvious that humanity will hit a point where it will say something has to be done. Already out there on the internet, these things with free energy, with wind energy, geothermal energy, solar energy, alternative forms, again, free energy, different forms, and gasoline, water-driven cars, and it's hitting the fan is hitting, it's going through the roof already because there is a collective hysteria, like something has to be done. 
Therefore, this is how we fulfill the desires. We have desires. Finally, the car was not enough. And guess what? The airplanes appeared. If we would have only cars and trains, it would be rather impossible for you to come and visit me here in Thailand. It's possible for you to, visit, to come to Thailand every season because we have something even better than terrestrial transportation, and that is flight. Flight is a response of the collective mind of this planet, of the collective subconscious mind, to the desire. But the question is, has this been done with God, in the name of God, for God, like a sacrifice, like we did some, we gave something to God, or to the gods, if you prefer a more polytheistic Hindu thing, and we ask them, please, please, somebody up there, give us some faster means of transportation, because our society needs it. Or some global form of communication, such as mobile telephones or internet, or these are the response to needs, even if those needs have never been put on a board and expressed clearly, but it's the subconscious screaming for something. Therefore, Krishna says, the Creator gave Yagya for that sacrifice. Through sacrifice these things are being done. Through sacrifice these things should be done. Then they are done right. If not, they can take us also in wrong places, as you are going to see, because this is something about the order of the universe. Here we are talking about a very much deeper order of the universe. And here is his going deeper. First he said, from the beginning of the creation, Creator said, this is the way to prosper. Remember, it's for you. You want to be spiritual person. Some of you are advanced in yoga. Some of you are teachers. You are going to continue and live your life. And Krishna says, if you want to have children, if you want to prosper, if you want to fulfill your desires and all the other things which he said there, you should do it by sacrifice. You should offer. It should be done. People say, I'm going to do something. But what did you offer to fulfill that? For example, in the old days, people were practicing, and this was something which we recommended here to many spiritual people, the principle of tithing, like you always offer one-tenth of your income to God. That's sacrifice. It's like you throw it into the fire. Either you give it to the orphans of Mother Teresa, or to some children in Africa, or to the Buddhist temple right here, or to your yoga school, or to somebody or something which does something divine with it, something spiritual. You are sacrificing. That's a form of sacrifice. And then you prosper. I, I was surprised to see some people taking these teachings. I remember I saw some early books on personal development and some of this self-made man type of things like, you know, the, all these books about self-management and how to make yourself better, but some early ones from the 70s and the 80s. And the author in one of them, who sounded as a very competent and really good, conscious, discriminate author, 
paradoxically, I was shocked because I never expected it. He started the book and he said, before you start anything, if you really want to put your mind to work and your subconscious should serve you and this, you should donate 10% of what you make automatically. You start with it. You don't do it when you will be rich enough so you can afford. You start with it and your subconscious mind will react because then you will receive. If you give, you will be able to receive. And paradoxically, he who gives, receives more. And people say, well, if I give, I shall have less. No, that's just the gross materialistic vision of it. When you give, you receive more, actually. But very few people trust this mechanism to see if it works. So, he continues explaining the principle of the sacrifice. He says, through yagya, which again, it can mean sacrifice in the wider meaning, through yagya, you sustain the gods, and those gods will sustain you. By sustaining one another, you will attain the highest good. What Krishna says here is something which I mention often, when we teach the art of dying. Not only the gods, but for example, you never give something to the deceased, to the souls of the dead. And because we don't give alms to the souls of the dead, the dead cannot help us or won't help us. Simply don't want. They become stubborn. We don't help them, they don't help us. Thus the circle is cut and we don't get the blessings. And we think it doesn't matter, because we are skeptical, atheistic, have no faith. We have become cynical, and we don't see, our spirit is gross, and we think, but people actually could understand that if you give to the dead, you are the one who is better off. It's worth it to give to the souls of the dead, because they are of some use to you. So even those of you who are egocentric and materialistic and have ulterior motives and wouldn't budge a finger if there is nothing in it for you, Krishna says there is something in it for you. And if you zoom back the camera, it's not only about the dead. The dead are on a very low level of the cosmic ladder. But it's the gods. Of course, the gods mean different things in different societies. For example, animistic shamanistic societies, they don't have very high gods. Their gods are some strong entities, not necessarily very high. For example, many medicine men and many shamans, they pray to various spirits of the nature. May the great bear come and help our tribe. May the great eagle, these are totemic spirits, egregoric spirits of the animal species, like the whole family, species of the eagle, of the bear, of the raven, of the fox, of this and that. This is how shamanism works. It works with spirits of nature. Those spirits of nature are not enlightened Buddhas. They are on a certain moderate level of the cosmic scale. Some of them are even subhuman in terms of spirituality, although can be very powerful. For example, you can use the help of an elephant. Although the elephant is subhuman, it's way stronger than you and it can help you in your daily work if you want to transport logs, trunks, tree trunks. And therefore, shamans communicate with all sorts of spirits and medicine men. 
In magic, these are known very well. They are called elemental spirits. Not elementary, but elemental with an L in the end. Elemental spirits, like spirits of the elements. Fairies, the spirits of the air. Salamanders, the spirits of the fire. Undines and mermaids, the spirits of the water. Gnomes, the spirits of the earth. And other spirits. The ancient traditions are full of them, of dwarfs and goblins and ogres and um, all sorts of other spirits of the nation, the nymphs of the Greeks and all the others, the satyrs, the satires and others, endless amounts of spirits of nature. But those spirits are not necessarily enlightened, although they can have something which you don't have, like a dog has the capacity to sniff a trail. So when you want to find a missing person, a dog can be invaluable because it sniffs the trail and it takes you to the missing person. So you can be very grateful to the dog and the dog is more powerful than you, although the dog serves you. But to be able to use the dog, you have to train it, tame it, and you have to educate it to sniff a trail. Like you have to make the dog understand what you want from it, that you want a favor. And for that you have to feed it, and you have to pet it and make it your friend. So it's also a sacrifice. Even to the dog you have to give something, such as your love, your friendship, your protection, food, something, so that the dog should give you something in exchange. Therefore this thing, Krishna says, through Yagya you sustain the gods. But the gods of various traditions are different and in the history of religions and anthropology this creates precisely the quality of a religion and the quality of a human society. The more primitive the society, the more shamanistic and especially the more animistic, animism is even lower than shamanism is, and the lower the spirits with which it works it is. There, ex it's a, there exists a movie uh, a documentary uh, in the school, some people in the school, I think it's rid riding or being ridden by the gods or something. I don't know why I don't remember the exact title. Maybe some of you will remember and tell it to the others. It's about voodoo in Benin, in Western Africa. Riding the gods or being ridden by the gods or something. It doesn't matter. The point of what I'm trying to say is when you see that movie and you see all the shamans and medicine men from that African culture, it's very low. It's very gross. It's not that it's weak. There is a, one of these shamans living in a cremation ground in a brick. And he says, I can kill anybody if you want, if you pay me the due. I can make rituals. There is not a person in this world that I cannot kill. I can kill anybody in a few days. Like he's extremely confident in his black art. But of course he uses some extremely low spirit. But it's not that they are not powerful. They can kill human beings. They can simply stop your life. And that man is known for the fact that he is a magic killer. So lower societies use the spirits of the dead, ghosts, hungry ghosts. Demons, pretas, asuras, all sorts, titans, all sorts of uh, classes of entities. And then the higher you go, the more the gods start becoming clean. They start becoming rajasic, demonic, 
and then they start becoming finally sattvic. Generally, the devas, which are mentioned in the Scandinavian tradition, Greek and Roman tradition, and Hindu Vedic tradition, these are gods which are sattvic, although they are far from being perfect, and they have enemies. They are the gods of life, which are called in India devas, or suras, and they have enemies, which are called the asuras. The, and in Greece, the gods of Mount Olympus, they are constantly nagged by the titans, the giants or the titans, which are some demonic entities, some manipuristic, rajasic types of entities that constantly challenge their authority and are up to mischief. Not necessarily like the devils in the Christian hell, because sometimes these titans can do good things. For example, you all know probably that according to Greek mythology, fire was given to the human beings by Prometheus. But Prometheus, many of you probably don't know, is a titan, not a god. So he is like a whimsical, demonic entity who simply wanted to give a gift to the human beings. He was not necessarily a very nice guy. Of course, he did something very nice for humanity. That's something else. But even a Colombian drug lord, who is a murderer and a drug trafficker, can be nice to some people and have a whim and donate you a car or a gift or simply make an act of generosity or something. Therefore, this is the so-called demonic nature. We'll get back to that. Bhagavad Gita has a special chapter consecrated to that. What I am trying to say is that these categories of spirits, they go from the dark spirits of tamasic nature to some powerful spirits of rajasic nature, then they go to some whiter spirits of sattvic nature, and even that is not the end of it. Actually, when you look at the Scandinavian gods or Greek gods, Roman and Hindu gods, you discover that they have many flaws. For example, anybody who bothered to read the legends of Olympus, the Greek legends of the gods, many of them are very dubious people. These gods, they are very dubious entities which have sometimes very arrogant, proud, egocentric behaviors. Like they are powerful, they are way, way more powerful than the human beings can imagine, but they wouldn't bother. They are immortal. To be a god is to reach immortality. It's not really immortality. That's what the gods think, maybe, that they are immortal. They are not immortal in the strict sense of the word, because even they have a beginning and an end, but compared to human existence, they are like immortal, but they are not necessarily nice. Zeus is a seducer, he is a fornicator, he constantly goes for beautiful women to hump them. And his wife is jealous at those women and she behaves, she is a cat to them and she bitches them very much and she does all sorts of nasty stuff. So they are far from perfect because there are things even further than these gods. And for example, the Christian the Jews already moved their mysticism to one God above all gods that would be called Jehovah. And Jehovah is like, forget about all the 
Indras and Varunas and Mitra and uh, the Vayus. Eh? Forget about Zeus and Hermes and Hera and uh, all those and Artemisa or whoever, Artemis. And now we have a God that is above all the gods and is like the father of them all, the creator, the originator, stronger than all of them. But you will be surprised that in some purest forms of Christianity, for example, they even deny the Judeo-Christian God. For example, the Qatars, the Albigensians, the famous Qatars, which is a deviant, not in the negative way necessarily, branch of Christianity, which was cruelly suppressed in the 12th century by the Catholic Church, the Qatars, which were the followers of the Gnostics and of the Bogomils, there is a long story there, I don't have time to start detailing here that part, there is enough bibliography out there for you to read these things. The Qatars, their philosophy, like the Gnostics, it starts with the Gnostics, everybody says, speaks Gnostic Christianity, Gnostics, Gnostic scriptures, most of you probably don't know what the Gnostic scriptures actually say, they say that Jehovah, of the Jews and of the main trend Christian church, is an aeon, is like something stronger than Jupiter, but it's just a very, very big spirit, but it's not the ultimate God. And that's why that this so-called God of the Jews and most Christians is the devil, is a sort of a demon. And they quote a word of Jesus from the Bible, where Jesus himself who speaks at some point in the Gospel of John, and he implies very clearly that the God previously worshipped by the Jews was actually a demonic entity. Because that's why it wants blood. That's why it wants all sorts of, even the initiation ceremony, which in the Jewish society is circumcision, it's a ceremony which involves blood and physical mutilation. And therefore, and the Qatars, who are purists, they say no. Jesus Christ came from the true God of light, which is beyond this aeon called Jehovah or whatever that created this causal world. This is just an eon, a very powerful demiurge, which has created a universe. But above this one, there is the real transcendent God of light, and that's where Jesus came from. And that's why Jesus was not recognized and he brought another kind of God. But the Qatar says, say, even the Catholics are deluded because although they say they are separate from the Jews, they worship the same Jehovah. Only they say that Jehovah sent Jesus, and it, but they don't realize it's another level, even further than that. Of course, this is a very controversial kind of thing, and I'm not telling you necessarily that... Uh, I'm sustaining this here, but I just want to show to you that various degrees of spirituality, they choose a higher and higher and higher, like for the monotheistic religions, all these polytheistic gods of the Greeks or of the Hindus, they were too low, they were too imperfect, sacrificing to Indra or sacrificing to Zeus, that the Romans came and said, I'm going to sacrifice ten bulls to Jupiter. And then the Jews and the Christians say, 
It's nonsense to sacrifice ten bulls to Jupiter because we have God the Father who is way beyond all the Jupiters and all the Marses and all the Venuses and all those astrological gods which ultimately are some imperfect creatures. Yes, higher, stronger, but look, we are now in connection with a God which is like an umbrella and covers all of them and which is stronger and above them. And that was the power place in the instauration of the Jews among the Gentiles in the Palestine area with the Egyptians. The pharaohs thought that their gods, the Egyptian gods, Isis and Ra and all those were stronger. And Moses came and showed them that his God was stronger than all their gods. In the, when Christianity took over Rome, constantly the Roman emperor and the people who were persecuting Christians were asking to the Christians to bow down to the Roman gods. And the Christians kept giving them the finger and telling them, no, we don't recognize the Roman gods. The Roman gods are trash. They are semi-demons, demigods, whatever you want to call them. We bow only to the real one God that is above all those gods, and so on. But the Cathars came and said, even that is not good enough. There is something even above that. And therefore, what I am trying to say here is, take it in a liberal and grand way, when Krishna says, through Yagya you sustain the gods. But then a Jewish person will say, well, I don't have gods. My parents have taught me the revelation of Jehovah. Okay, by Yagya you sustain the God, the God, the one. By Yagya you sustain God. Many people don't understand. They say, but what? God needs to be sustained. Like, why does Zeus need that I should show some, throw some butter in the fire and say svaha, 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 and throw some dill seeds, and I don't know, cumin seeds, and it's like, what the heck is this? This sounds like witchcraft, it sounds like a bargain. I give you some dill seeds, you give good health to my children. And then, if you go a bit more evolved, you don't work with five gods, you just work with one, and you call it whatever, Savaot or something, and you give it a lamb, so it should be good for you to you for the next year. On the Passover day, I give a lamb to God, and God will look with benevolence upon me. That's again a sacrifice, but only to gods as one. But then you can do prayer, you can do meditation, you can do Udhyanabandha, but you still have to do something. The tragedy of the atheistic, ignorant, agnostic society is that this chain is interrupted completely. This chain is not even done. But actually, the sacrifice still happens. Because even when you don't know that you belong to something, and you ignorantly say, no, no, I'm free, I'm by myself, you still belong. It's exactly like a four-year-old child who does not accept that he's French. But he lives in France. He has a social security number. He is accounted in the computers of the French society. He can kick his feet as much as he wants. He can scream and pretend he doesn't know. He's still French. The French government still has that child in their account and in their rosters. 
And therefore it's the same with these gods. You can say, Jupiter has no sway over me. And Jupiter does all the time. We all respond to the astrological influence of the planet and our destiny and many other things are entwined with this. So foolish, foolish, foolish is the person who thinks that the full moon has no effects on them. Foolish and blind is the person who thinks that there is no Jupiter and it has no and he has no influence if you want to take it as a person. Foolish, foolish, foolish are those who think that there is no power, cosmic power of time, and the cosmic power of time called in India Kali has no influence just because you don't know Kali and you don't accept it and you think, no, no, I can't accept that any force would have any influence upon me. And then you think that by disbelief you cancel that influence. By disbelief you cannot cancel the influence of the moon on your psyche or on your body. You just create ignorance. That's all you create. You refuse, you like the ostrich, you put your head into the sand. Of course, the ostriches, by the way, never put their head into the sand. That's a superstition, but just a popular expression that you are digging your head into the sand uh, like an ostrich. Let's take a five minutes break for stretching technicalities as well. And after that, I will continue because here Krishna gives us incredible teaching which will change your spiritual life very, very much when you apply them and understand them. So I'm continuing with the analysis of the strophe number 11 because this is giving us one of the great, great truths and principles. Let's read it again. He says, With this you nourish the gods, and may the gods nourish you, the gods may nourish you. Thus, sustaining or nourishing one another, you shall attain to the highest good. This is so important. It is, there are so many technical things, I don't see an end to the things which I can say or I should say about this principle. By this you sustain the gods. But what sustenance do the gods need? The gods don't need in the selfish way any sustenance. It is said in the Greek mythology, the human beings are created by the gods. As you know, in the understanding of yoga, if we want to go strictly into metaphysics, what are these famous gods? And now we don't speak about the shamanic or animic gods, which are nothing else but spirits of the nature, comparable to the human being, sometimes subhuman, sometimes superhuman, and characterized by various abilities, sometimes outstanding abilities. But the gods, what India calls devas, the gods are definitely a higher category of beings, and these are beings which reside in the causal world, in the causal universe. At the level of the causal universe, if you want to know more about this study, the autobiography of Paramahamsa Yogananda, the text about the resurrection of Yukteswar, or join us when we do metaphysical workshops or lectures about metaphysics here in the school, even in the art of dying, we touch a little bit of this subject because there are forms of life, intelligence, existence, and the human beings are part of it on various levels of existence of this universe. And there exists a life, an intelligence, which happens in the causal world, 
in the causal planes, which are very, very, very high levels of the universe, very subtle, way more subtle than the spirits of nature and the causal entities, for the human beings appear as gods. They can create things such as Greek mythology, tell stories like a god hurled a burning piece of stone taken from the oven, taken from the furnace of Hephaestus, the blacksmith of the gods, and took a piece of burning coal and hurled it at a titan and missed him, and that piece of coal falling in the water of the Mediterranean, of course, because they lived in the Mediterranean, it created Sicily, the island of Sicily, because it has a volcano of it on it, and therefore that volcanic island of Sicily is just a stone hurled by the god and stuck in the water of the Mediterranean. This is how the gods are. Even if they make a sleight of hand, they hurl a stone, they create an island on the planet Earth. Whatever the gods do, they create continents, planets, realities, forms of life. Like these gods are way, way beyond the spirits of nature. Like a, a shaman invokes the great buffalo to give us a good hunt or good crops. Or that a medicine man invokes I don't know what spirit to produce rain because it's drought and the crops are going to die. These are way lower spirits compared to what the gods are. The gods are pretty high, but above the gods they are higher gods. Like, even the gods have their own stratification, and the higher you go in the levels of the universe, when you go to the upper causal levels, then you find the major gods, the gods of the gods. For example, Shiva in India is often called by the epithet Deva Deva. And Deva Deva means the Deva of the Devas. What the Devas are to human beings, that's what Shiva is to the Devas. He is the god of the gods. So that is why I am telling you these things to understand that of course the referential is different. And what can you offer to major gods? Even let's take a Roman god, Jupiter, which is Indra of the Indian tradition, and Thor of the Scandinavian tradition, and of course Zeus of the Greek tradition. All these four names, Thor, Zeus, Jupiter, or Indra, they are all of them designating the same one spirit, which is related astrologically with the Jupiter planet, and which is the great beneficent planet of our solar system, and it represents a divine influence. <coughs> what can we offer to Jupiter? Like, how come that the Romans came to the point of sacrificing bulls to Jupiter? Why does Jupiter need bulls? The Hindus were sacrificing horses, Ashvamedha, the horse sacrifice. In India, until today, in Bengal, they sacrifice to Kali, which is a much higher level of consciousness than Jupiter or Indra. They sacrifice goats. Why will you do that? Therefore, 
here is a great mystery because people always think about these things with a limited mind. People always think about these things through the prism of their own ignorance and through the prism of their own limitation. It is said, it has been said, the beauty is in the eyes of the onlooker. Like a twisted person will see only twisted people around them. A generous person sees only generous people around them. And sometimes that has a magical effect, like in little Lord Fauntleroy. Little Lord Fauntleroy comes, and his grandfather, everybody thinks that he's a jerk and an asshole, but little Lord Fauntleroy thinks that his grandfather is wonderful and generous and full of love. And the old man is transformed through the power of the belief of the little kid, who is so pure and candid that the old man has to play the role. He falls into the role which his own grandson gives to him because he doesn't want to disappoint him. It's, you know, it's too cruel and he tries his best to become a better human being. Therefore, human beings think that if they are selfish, if they are having ulterior motives, so are the gods. I have to give to Jupiter a goat or a bull or a horse or something, because Jupiter, if I don't please him, Jupiter will be upset at me and punish me. That is far from the case. Even a spirit like Jupiter, which can be vengeful, moody, still, it's very little to expect that Jupiter will get pissed off at some ant-like human being living on a speck of a planet somewhere in a corner of a solar system just because that human being forgot to sacrifice things to Jupiter. Jupiter is much bigger and has... He has many other things to do than to take care of every person who doesn't pay their mafia protection tax to Jupiter. So therefore, generally what Jupiter does is, if you do not pay heed to me, I don't give a damn about you. Sure, let's see if it's okay for you. Like, I am a great god living in the causal world. You don't want to pay heed to me? I am simply not assisting you. You forget me, I forget you. Let's see who of us has got more to lose from this deal. Skeptics, cynics, atheists, materialists think they have got nothing to lose. But the religious authorities say always think twice. Krishna says think twice because it appears like you bribe the gods. It appears like you nourish the gods. Shivananda even translates this, not sustain, but nourishing, like you give food to the gods. But why would you give food to the gods? Let's look at the magic aspect of it. In the tantric tradition, we can understand this thing metaphysically and deeply, and here you are having things which are usually not being told. You are giving something, a flower, to Jupiter. I'm choosing a middle-of-the-way example, neither low spirits of the nature, which is pure magic, sorcery, witchcraft, not necessarily black or evil, but still sorcery, and I'm not choosing just monotheistic, like prayer to Jesus, the prayer of the heart, or the mass, or something, metaphor, metaphysical, diluted, 
sacrifice. Let's choose a classic one. Somebody gives something to Jupiter, which is again not very much practiced in the modern society. In India, in Hinduism, there are many Brahmins who still make rituals for Ganesha and Varuna and Agni and, of course, uh, Indra and others. So, you are sacrificing something to Jupiter. But Jupiter is a pretty colossal entity living in the causal world. Jupiter is an entity like there are probably 10 or 20 like Jupiter in the whole solar system. Not more than that. So it's like a colossal entity which is pretty big in the hierarchy of the universe. Again, even though having a grand ego, not enlightened, but nevertheless powerful. A king doesn't need to be enlightened, but that doesn't mean make the king less powerful in terms of the authority which is entrusted on it. And you give something to Jupiter. Why do you need to nourish Jupiter? The idea is like, what does Jupiter get from you? Well, here the problem is very complex because there are two answers and they are simultaneous. The two things happen at the same time. And therefore, pay attention because what you receive now is a little bit of an esoteric secret and I'm not going to go with it further than the limit which is allowed in a revelation like this. Those of you who know more about yoga and tantra and metaphysics will be able to draw your own conclusions and go deeper. When we have questions and answers for your level of practice, then you can detail these with your teachers, with going deeper. In this universe, there exists a law of the planes, which means the planes of the universe are generally separate from each other, and the transition between them is inviolate. Like, for example, spirit from the astral world, like such as your deceased <coughs> grandmother, cannot come and nag you right, right now. Your grandmother can roam like a ghost or like a spirit, even through this room, if the room is not energetically sealed. She can come and stand behind your left shoulder. She can try to whisper some things to you, especially if you had an excellent grandmother or something. You may have a sort of a telepathic spiritual relationship with a spirit, with a disincarnated person, but your grandmother really can't reach to you. Scientists, parapsychologists like Raudive, Konstantin Raudive, all these people with the white light, with the white noise and this, they desperately try to create devices by which they could create a sort of breakthrough between this world and another world, at least, at least the world of the dead. That would be one first target. And nobody succeeded until today with any conclusive experiment. There are some interesting experiments done, more than you would think, some of them not made public by their discoverers, but nothing is conclusive and like it is simply not allowed by the Creator, by God, if you wish, 
It's simply not allowed that the dead can talk to you. If the dead could freely talk to you, then you, our life would be changed completely. Many, many, many forms of ignorance which we have on this earth would not exist anymore. If the dead could talk to us, we would immediately know the answer to the question if there is reincarnation or not. For example, to mention a simple one, because the spirits of the dead could come and give us pertinent information and proof after proof after proof until they would convince us. But that is not permitted. It's a wall of silence. It's one of the karmic things which define the condition of the human beings existing on earth. When you exist incarnated in a human body on earth, you are not supposed to know that. Only a fraction, a minority of saints and seers who through their own personal karma and personal efforts have surpassed a certain level in their evolution, only they can see, but the other people usually don't believe them or consider them weirdos, freaks, something, and they are, their statements are always doubted. And if you notice, even people like Milarepa and Ramakrishna and other people endowed with great power, they never bothered to try to demonstrate. They could have a very clear communication, some of them. And then if the spirits can't talk to us, then why doesn't Milarepa talk to us? Because Milarepa can talk to the spirits and can act as a, in, as a go-between. But Milarepa won't do that because he knows that that's not the will of God. That's not the Dharma of existence on this planet. So Milarepa could, but it doesn't mean he's going to do it because he respects the will of the creator of this universe. The will of the creator of this universe is that when you are born as a human being in a human body, you should normally forget and be in doubt and not be told about these things. Only through a personal effort can you gain so much merit that you can break this chain, that you can break this limitation, and you can break it only for you, only personally for you, and maybe for a small circle of trust around you, but not for everybody. That is why, remember that um, the spirit, the law of the planes, makes that the planes, the upper planes can see the lower planes, but still they cannot interfere. For example, Hollywood movies make you believe that people can be possessed just like that. That's false. Because if the demons or even all sorts of other entities and spirits would be able to possess human beings at their whim, this world would be a nightmare. Would live in a universe which would be total chaos and an absolute nightmare to live in. But actually the demons cannot and believe me, they want to. They are nasty enough and they want to very much. They are constantly hunting for an opportunity to hunt and possess. But they can't. Because the creator of this universe has created a law of the planes. And that law of the planes, the creator himself won't violate it. Because then the creator makes a law which he himself breaks then we don't have a game. It's like you want to play Monopoly but or chess, and then you get pissed off because you lose, 
and then you change the rules of the game in the, or you break them in the middle of the game. Then it's not a game. It's not fun to play chess if you cheat yourself in the middle or if some other game if you cheat. Therefore, the creator cannot, would not break the games because that, the rules of the game, because that's the very consistency, self-consistency of the consciousness that has created this universe. And that is why the planes are separate. And that's why people say, why do the gods not help me more? Because they are disciplined and they don't break the rules. The gods are here, you are here, the gods do have some powers and some of them are very big and they exert those powers only in report to Dharma. Like Jupiter does exert his power and you can see it in astrology. It's a music of one of the spheres. There is the sphere of Jupiter and from the sphere of Jupiter we get, because Jupiter was assigned a certain task at the beginning of the solar system and he fulfills that task. Therefore, he does not play shenanigans. He does not start taking initiatives because there is a Dharma. He has been asked to fulfill a function, not to be a maverick and to do freelance stuff. Because then the planet Jupiter would start moving chaotically and the astronomers would be puzzled because none of the rules of celestial mechanics would be there anymore. There is a correspondence between what we see physically and what's happening invisibly. As above, so below. The different spheres of the universe always correspond. So, Jupiter would like to help you additionally. Like we say, you know, in, besides what Jupiter does anyway do for this solar system and for this planet, I would like to make friends with Jupiter. Or let's take a more yogic example, with the sun with Surya Deva. Therefore, I start doing sun salutations and saying mantras because I want Surya Deva to give me more. Surya Deva gives something to everybody in this universe, such as light, warmth. Life itself is coming from the sun. It is, there's no doubt about it. But I want the sun to give me more, like I want the sun to give me long life. Astrologically, I should live 65 years of age, and I would like to live 100. And I want to do this with the sun. The sun is powerful enough to extend my lifespan a lot. That's a minor thing for the sun. The sun could make me rich. The sun could make my children very successful or something. I want to ask a favor of the sun. The sun would love to, maybe. Maybe. We say it's a high spirit and it's sattvic and perhaps it has a certain amount of compassion. But the sun cannot break the law of the planes. Cannot poke a finger in your level of manifestation and do something additional. Because I am asking to the sun to produce a miracle. To break the rule of the game. To bring something additional besides the general astrological influence of the sun. For that... I have to give some energy to the sun to, so that the sun can use it and not energy from there, energy from here. Like the sun says, I would like to do this for you, but I need to invest some money to buy first of all two kilos of apples and with those two apples I can nourish you. 
So the sun says, you are waiting me to just materialize those apples for you. That's like Jesus Christ raising the dead. It's a miracle which happens once every 500 years, and it's through divine will to correct the goings of the human history, and it's a gift from above. That's very seldom. And the sun says, you don't budge a finger, I cannot break the laws, because the sun is much more knowledgeable than you about the laws of the universe, and the sun is much more disciplined than you about the laws of the universe, because the sun is very high and thus close to God, and the sun therefore knows the Dharma and understands the laws of the universe. And therefore the sun, you cannot bribe the sun to break the rules. And therefore the sun says, you want me to do some action down there in that world? Put a certain capital at my disposal. Then I will invest that capital and do my own thing. But it's down there. I do not have to take some energy from the causal world and cross it through four planes of the universe down until it becomes a physical thing. That would violate the law of the plants. Give me something physical or etheric, some energy in Anamaya Kosha or Pranamaya Kosha, directly down there with which I can operate, and then I will do it. This is one of the major meanings of sacrifice, and this is sometimes done as witchcraft, sorcery, magic, white or black, but it's done the same in the spiritual levels. Even the Christian mass, it's the same, because you give something to have a physical thing, that you drink some wine and some bread, and those are transfigured, they are transubstantialized, they are transmuted into something which produces a spiritual effect. And for that, you give something, you receive something. That's why the principle is, you sustain the gods. Surya Deva doesn't need my energy, but I constantly want something from Surya Deva. And I can be very neutral with Surya Deva and say, Surya Deva, you gave me life, you give me light, you do that anyhow, because the sun is shining over everybody. I don't need anything more from you. I'm neutral to you, just as you are probably neutral to me. But spiritual people want more, and there is not one of you who in some circumstance of your life, you didn't have a need or an emergency, and you said, well, it would be good right now if now I could have somebody to assist me. And when you get to that moment, which is inevitable in the human life many times, over a lifetime, then you start doing Yagya. That's when the time for Yagya comes. Like, the sun is compassionate, he can do something, but not break the laws of the Creator, and that's why I have to give to the sun some energy, not for the sun, for me, so that the sun can help me. The sun, that energy will be invested in my advantage, but it needs to be a low energy. Either that energy means food. I'm offering offerings of food. In India, the most simple offering they do, they go in the Ganges and they take water from the Ganges and they give it to the sun. They say a mantra, like Om Suryaya Namaha, it can be used, and thus 
they offer, why do they offer water to the sun? Popular superstition, because the sun is so hot that it gets thirsty and you please it. It is Tejas Tatva, the fire Tatva, and you give it some Apas Tatva to cool it down. That's superstition because people project their own neediness. All the unworthy little ants that live on earth, imagine that the sun needs them. Because they are needy and they are ready to do bargain and business all the time. The sun is at a much higher level. It does business, but not with the little ants and not in that way. Therefore, the Surya Deva, you give energy, that energy comes to you. It's a blessing for you. The sun can say, this person has given me 20 kilos of Apas Tattva, and what, what am I going to use those 20 kilos? I'm going to make this person healthier, because this person eats very badly, and sooner or later is going to have a cancer. Okay, thank you for that offering, thanks for thinking at me, and I'm giving you back this energy, I'm investing it for you. It's exactly like somebody saves a hundred dollars every month and gives them to an investor or to a banker and says, take this for me and do the best because I'm a bit of a reckless, chaotic person and I'm going to lose this money. So I better take them now and give them to you. Give some energy to Surya Deva so that Surya Deva can work for you. And if you have done the right prayers, the right mantras, this will work for you. I don't know if your mind opens up and you understand how big this thing is, because there is, an, there is an economy of the universe. This universe is a constant exchange between the planes, but you have to make a smart move to open the door, because until you don't open the, this gate, the upper entities stay like this. They just stay and wait. They can't break the rules, and you can determine it. You ask an angel to help you, the angel helps you. But if you don't ask the angel to help you, he won't help you because he is not supposed to just come and interfere in your life without your free will. They respect your free will. And that is why, all in all, to make the long story short, that's the major reason. Krishna says, through Yagya, you sustain the gods. And these gods will sustain you. That's why they sustain you. It's not that the energy which you give, that you gave 10 apples to Jupiter, and the energy goes to Jupiter in the causal world, and from the causal world, Jupiter sends it back as a, or something else as a reward. No. The energy stays in Pranamaya Kosha, the prana in those 10 apples, and Jupiter with his mind uses it to heal you, to heal your children, or whatever the story was about. Therefore, the law of the planes is respected to a large extent. And if Jupiter has no energy, he cannot act. If everybody stops giving energy to a god, that god becomes fruitless, like dead. Because a god that is not worshipped anymore becomes inactive, because it has no more fuel. It has no more, nothing to invest. Nobody makes any bargains with that God anymore. And the God becomes inactive. The God sits in that causal world. Nobody thinks about me. I don't think about anybody. Nobody asks me to do something. I don't do anything. And so on and so forth. Then the isolation is continuous. But the human beings need 
the higher intelligences. We need Surya Deva. It's a great thing to be friends with Surya Deva. That's why it's a very smart thing to offer something to Surya Deva every day. What do you offer to Surya Deva every day? Surya Namaskaras. That's what the Surya Namaskara is. In Surya Namaskara, you offer a little bit of energy by mantras, concentration, sweat, some of your ojas, if you want, you offer it to Surya Deva. But not that Surya Deva should get fat on your sweat, because Surya Deva doesn't really need your sweat. It's an energy which you give to Surya Deva and say, do the best for me with my own energy, because I don't really know what's best for me. You are bigger and smarter. Help me with this energy. Invest it for me. Put it in the chakra where I need it. Do whatever I need for it. It's a very smart principle. Think always in these terms. The gods don't really need. But the, there is a second meaning and I'm breaking my own rule because I want to finish this and I will resume the ideas next week when I am stopping in the middle of this. So there will be more. You are going to hear more. But this is, again, invaluable teaching that I'm revealing to you here. Surya Deva, if, if nobody calls on Surya Deva, Surya Deva becomes like a dead god, like a forgotten god. Like how many people worship Ra or Isis or even better, some other older gods, Astarte, the goddess Astarte. How many people make sacrifices to Astarte today? And therefore there are many of these gods which simply become forgotten and becoming forgotten is like going dead, going inactive. It's not that the gods die, but simply they become cut off. Therefore, it means something for the gods, because as long as you venerate them, they get something. I was not completely truthful when I said, you give ten apples to Surya Deva, and Surya Deva invests those ten apples for you. Actually, Surya Deva does get something. That something is your attention. The fact that you become aware of Surya Deva. The fact that you pay attention to Surya Deva. The fact that you consider him. And the fact that you know that there is a Surya Deva out there. And thus Surya Deva does not slide into oblivion from your standpoint or from our standpoint. And that's why... Actually, the gods need us. They love very much to poke their finger in our world and to interact because that's their life. If not, it's like they exist uselessly, like they become sterile. I exist, but I have no function in the world of these people. Then why the heck do I exist anymore? Maybe I should go in another solar system or like I should migrate somewhere else where I can do my own karma yoga. From the standpoint of that God, of that deity, they need to be in action. Action is superior to inaction also for them. And that's why actually there is an exchange. The gods do get something from us. A mother feeds her baby. Nur gives him milk from her own breast. A mother washes the baby, gives it protection, shelter, everything. But the mother also gets something from the baby. 
she gets satisfaction, she gets a hormonal fulfillment, her progesterone or whatever it is, whatever hormones give to a woman, the endorphins in the brain or the oxytocin or whatever makes a mother happy when she holds her little baby, she gets it, she gets a kick. The mother gets a trip every time she looks at her baby, plays with it, does things and it's sometimes irrational. People say, oh come on, you're just wasting and wasting and wasting. The mother still feels she gets something, even if it's the satisfaction of fulfilling an instinct, a very basic instinct, but she feels she's getting something. And if you try to make a very materialistic account, you can say actually she's not getting anything, because even the love of this little creature is fake. You take this child and put it with another woman, in six months it will love the other woman as much as it loves this one, because the other woman gives it milk, gives it protection, gives it this. All this love is just a, it's, it's a utopia, it's a myth. There is no real love. The baby is dependent on food and some other very primitive motivations. Even then, so remember the mother gives something to the child, a lot, visible, but the baby also gives something to the mother, which is a bit more discreet, more invisible, a form of happiness, a form of fulfillment. That is why the gods give us, even life, we are created by the gods, it's their causal influence and their universe, but we give them something back by worshipping them, by considering them. And therefore, this statement is very profound and on so many levels. Through Yagya, you can sustain or you do sustain the gods and those gods will sustain you. It's a give and receive. Even Krishna in another part, not in Bhagavad Gita, tells to Arjuna, now it's time for you to give me a gift. And Arjuna says, like I wrote it in the text about the blessing, the art of blessing. And Arjuna says, why? I mean, I'm not supposed to pay you some dues. You are not some mafia boss and I'm supposed to pay you tribute. Why should I give you? You just come and say, now you have to give me something. Why should I give you? Are you my boss or something? Like he and Krishna says, no, I'm your friend. So I don't need something important. Just give me something symbolic. And like Arjuna is still saying, why? Because he says, if you don't give me something, you're... I'm I'm now paraphrasing. It's like he says, your subconscious mind cannot receive the help which I want to give it to you because you are closed through your own faith like you don't deserve. And therefore, if you give me something, your subconscious mind will absurdly become open like now you deserve to receive something because you gave me something. The human consciousness, the consciousness of give and receive. So he simply says, give me a tulsi leaf. That's the Indian basil. Just a plant, just basil, sweet basil, holy basil. And he says, take a leaf of basil and give it to me. It means nothing. It has no value. But yet your subconscious mind will say, if I gave basil to Krishna, now I deserve to be held by Krishna. And that opens you. And therefore, remember, through Yagya you sustain the gods and you, the gods sustain you. It's a give and receive philosophy. You cannot eliminate that from the mind. Exactly as our mind is yin and yang and the cells are plus and minus and the atoms are protons and electrons plus and minus, 
You cannot eliminate this from the nature of the universe. Only the great spirit, only the void, only Shiva is beyond this philosophy. But of course Shiva can voluntarily play the game for our sake. But otherwise, everything in this universe works on this give and receive, give to receive type of philosophy. That is why this is the beginning of the understanding for some of you in something very big, very deep. Through Yagya, which means also metaphoric sacrifice, symbolic, spiritual sacrifice, you sustain the gods, you'll see how, and these gods will sustain you. By sustaining one another, you'll attain to the highest good. It's like if the water doesn't move, the water becomes stale. Somebody says, I don't want the water in my pool to vaporize and become clouds and rain again and go in the underground and then again come. But if you keep the water in the pool, it rots, it stinks, it becomes stale and stagnant. As the water moves and becomes rain and underground water, it refreshes and it carries life with it. Exactly in the same way, this wheel of the universe must spin. We must give and receive. The circle must not stop. We must interact with the spirits of nature, with the gods, with the ancestors, and with the divine spirits themselves, with the great gods, with the divinities. We must interact and we must give because otherwise we don't receive. Remember, I don't want to be unfair. The deities also get something out of this, but they don't get the direct fruit of it. Like I'm giving ten apples to Surya, and Surya will keep five, the prana of five of them, and do whatever the heck he cares about. He will have fun with the prana from my apples, and with five apples he will help me. It doesn't go like this. Surya doesn't need prana in the etheric body for him. That's for you. But your worship, your mantras, your attention, your veneration does give something to Surya. It's like Surya gets status by being worshipped and that means something in the causal world because that shows the preeminence of some of these causal entities and their presence in the life of the earth. It's difficult to understand some of these things. We will stop here for now. I will continue with more explanations. This is an extremely vast subject and very important. And we shall continue a little bit because there are another three strophes, uh, or actually more than three strophes, where Krishna continues with this to make the understanding of Arjuna full. What has that got to do with Karma Yoga? It has a little bit to do somewhere because he says Yagya is like Karma Yoga. Karma Yoga is like a Yagya. But he nevertheless makes a big detour, a big parenthesis in this subject. And it is good for us because this is one of the major spiritual explanations. And those of you who understand it will progress in Tantra, Metaphysics and Spirituality a lot. As customary, let us remain in silence for a minute or two to calm down and to let these things sink deep in with gratitude towards Krishna for the divine understanding and after which we stop for tonight.
And that will do. We stop here for tonight. Namaste to all of you.